Book One, Chapter Nine of Arachne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Arachne by George Ebers. Translated by Mary J. Stafford. Book One, Chapter Nine. Herman had intended to add a few more touches to his Demeter, but he could not do it. Ledger, her demand, and the resentment with which she had left him were not to be driven from his mind. There was no doubt that he must seek her if he was not to lose her, yet he reproached himself for having acted like a thoughtless fool when he proposed to divide the night between her and Daphne. There was something offensive in the proposal to so proud a creature. He ought to have promised positively to come, and then left the banquet somewhat earlier. It would have been easy to apologize for his late arrival, and Ledscha would have had no cause to be angry with him. Now she had, and her resentment awakened in him, though he certainly did not lack manly courage, an uncomfortable feeling closely allied to anxiety. Angered by his own conduct, he asked himself whether he loved the barbarian, and could find no satisfactory answer. At their first meeting he had felt that she was far superior to the other Biomite maidens, not only in beauty, but in everything else. The very acerbity of her nature had seemed charming. To win this wonderful pliant creature, slender as a cypress, whose independence merged into fierce obstinacy, had appeared to him worth any sacrifice, and, having perceived in her an admirable model for his arachne, he had also determined to brave the dangers which might easily arise for the Greek from a love affair with a Biomite girl, whose family was free and distinguished. It had been easier for him to win her heart than he expected, yet at none of the meetings which she granted him had he rejoiced in the secret bond between them. Hitherto her austere reserve had been invincible, and during the greater part of their interviews he had been compelled to exert all his influence to soothe, appease her, and atone for imprudent acts which he had committed. True, she too had often allowed herself to display passionate tenderness, but always only to torture him with reproaches and demands inspired by her jealousy, suspicion, and wounded pride. Yet her beauty, and the strong power of resistance which she offered to his wooing, exerted so bewitching a thrall over him that he had been led into conceding far too much, and making vows which he could not, and did not, desire to fulfil. Love had usually been to him a richly flowing wellspring of gay delight, but this bond had plunged him from one vexation into another, one anxiety to another, and now that he had almost reached the goal of his wishes, he could not help fearing that he had transformed Ledger's love to hate. Daphne was dear to him. He esteemed her highly, and owed her a great debt of gratitude. Yet in this hour he anathematized her unexpected journey to Tennis, for without it he would have obtained from Ledger that very day what he desired, 
and could have returned to Alexandria with the certainty of finding her ready later to pose as the model for his Arachne. Never could he find anywhere a more fitting one. He had devoted himself with passionate love to his art, and even his enemies numbered him among its most promising disciples. Yet hitherto he had not succeeded in obtaining a great and undisputed success. On the other hand, he had experienced what were termed failures in abundant measure. The art to which he had gained entrance by so severe a struggle, and on whose soil he had laboured diligently enough, proved, so far as outward recognition was concerned, cruel to the enthusiastic disciple, yet even now he would not have abandoned it at any price. The joy of creation compensated him richly for suffering and disappointment. Confidence in his own powers and the final triumph of his conviction had deserted him only occasionally, and for a few brief hours. He was born for conflicts. What ill success! What antagonism and difficulties he had encountered! Some day the laurel which had so long adorned the brow of Myrtilus must also grow green for him and the great talent whose possession he felt. With the Arachne he was sure of this. He would compel even his opponents to accord him the recognition for which hitherto he had striven in vain. While pacing restlessly up and down the spacious apartment, stopping from time to time before his work, to fix his eyes angrily upon it, he thought of his friend's Demeter, whose head also had Daphne's features, who also bore in her hand a bundle of wheat, and even in attitude did not differ very widely from his own. And yet, eternal gods, how thoroughly dissimilar the two were! In the figure created by Myrtilus, supernatural dignity blended with the utmost womanly charm. In his, a pleasing head rested upon a body in whose formation he had used various models, without striving to accomplish anything except to depart as far as possible from established custom, with which he was at variance. Yet had he not found himself nevertheless compelled to follow the old rules? One arm was raised, the other hung down, the right foot was put forward, the left one back. Exactly the same as in Myrtilus's statue, and thousands of other figures of Demeter. If he could have used the hammer and chisel, the thing might have become more powerful. But how many things he had had to consider in employing the accursed gold and ivory upon which Archias obstinately insisted. This hammering, chipping, and filing told unfavourably upon his power and his aspiration towards grandeur. This time the battle seemed to be lost. It was fortunate that the conqueror was no other than Myrtilus. Often as he had gone astray in his young life, many as were the errors he had committed, not even the faintest shadow of an envious feeling concerning his friend's more successful work had ever stained his soul. True, the fact that fate, in addition to such abundant gifts of mind and spirit, had also endowed the latter with great worldly possessions, 
while he but for the generosity of his uncle archias must have starved had often led hermon to inveigh angrily against the injustice of the gods yet he did not grudge myrtilus the wealth without which he could not imagine him and which his invalid friend needed to continue successfully the struggle against the insidious disease inherited with the gold and his sufferings hermon could not have endured keener pain had they been his own he must even rejoice over the poor dear fellow's victory for if he hermon succeeded with his arachne as he hoped it would make myrtilus he could swear it happier than his own triumph after these reflections which again reminded him of the second appointment and of ledscha the sculptor turned away from his work and went to the window to look across at pelican island where she must not await him in vain the boat which was to convey him over to it lay ready in the little flotilla where a magnificently equipped galley had just been moored to the shore undoubtedly the one that had brought the guests from pelusium hither the best thing he could do was to greet them at once share the banquet with them and before the dessert was served seek the beautiful woman whom his absence threatened to make his foe and she was certainly justified in resenting it if with cruel lack of consideration he paid no heed to what had been prophesied for her on this night of the full moon for the first time compassion mingled with his feelings for ledscha if to avoid the fleeting censure of aristocratic friends he left in the lurch the simple barbarian maiden who loved him with ardent passion it was no evidence of resolute strength of soul but of pitiful reprehensible weakness no no he must take the nocturnal voyage in order not to grieve ledscha soon after the girl's abrupt departure he dressed himself in festal garments for the banquet it would flatter ledscha also if he went to her in this attire and with his figure drawn up to its full height he walked towards the door to go to the alexandrian's tent but what did this mean myrtilus was standing before his demeter scanning it intently with his keen artist's eyes Hermon had not noticed his entrance, and did not disturb him now, but fixed his gaze upon his mobile features in intense expectation. There were few of his fellow artists whose opinion he valued as highly as that of this darling of the muse. At a slight shake of the head, which Hermon interpreted as disapproval, he clinched his teeth, but soon his lips relaxed and his breast heaved with a sigh of relief, for the sunny glance that Myrtilus bent upon the face of the goddess seemed to show Hermon that it aroused his approval, and, as if relieved from an oppressive nightmare, he approached his friend. The latter turned towards him, exclaiming, Daphne, as in the case of yonder bust you have succeeded most perfectly with this dear face, only— Only, Hermon repeated slowly, i am familiar with that evil word doubts knock at the door with it out with them honestly 
I gave up my last hope of the prize yesterday, while looking at your Demeter. Besides, careful scrutiny has just destroyed the last gleam of satisfaction with my own work. But if you like the head, what seems to you the greatest defect in the figure? It has nothing to do with defects, which, with your rare ability, can scarcely exist, replied the other, the faint pink flush in his beardless cheeks deepening to a more vivid hue. It refers rather to the expression which you have given the divinity in yonder statue. Here Myrtilus hesitated, and turning so that he stood face to face with Hermon, asked frankly, Did you ever seek the goddess? And when you found her, did you feel any supernatural power and beauty? What a question! exclaimed Hermon in astonishment. A pupil of Straton, and go in search of beings and powers whose existence he denies? What my mother instilled into my heart I lost with my childhood, and you address your question only to the artist who holds his own ground, not to the boy. The power that calls creation to life and maintains it has for me long had nothing in common with those beings like mortals whom the multitude designates by the name of divinities. I think differently, replied Myrtilus. While I numbered myself among the Epicureans, whose doctrine still possesses the greatest charm for me, I nevertheless shared the master's opinion that it is insulting the gods to suppose that they will disturb their blissful repose for the sake of us insignificant mortals. Now my mind and my experience rebel against holding to this view. Yet I believe with Epicurus and with you that the eternal laws of nature bow to neither divine nor human will. And yet, said Hermon, you expect me to trouble myself about those who are as powerless as myself? I only wished that you might do so, answered Myrtilus, for they are not powerless to those who, from the first, assumed that they can do nothing in opposition to those changeless laws. The state, too, rules according to them, and the wise king who refrains from interfering with them in the smallest trifle can therefore wield the sceptre with mighty power. So, in my opinion, it is perfectly allowable to expect aid from the gods, but we will let that pass. A healthy man, full of exuberant vigour like yourself, rarely learns early what they can bestow in suffering and misfortune. Yet where the great majority believe in them, he too will be unable to help forming some idea of them. Nay, even you and I have experienced it. By a thousand phenomena they force themselves into the world which surrounds us and our emotional life. Epicurus, who denied their power, saw in them at least immortal beings who possess in stainless perfection everything which in mortals is disfigured by errors, weaknesses, and afflictions. To him they are the intensified reflected image of our own nature, and I think we can do nothing wiser than to cling to that, because it shows us to what heights of beauty and power, intellect, goodness, and purity we may attain. To completely deny their existence would hardly be possible even for you, because their persons have found a place in your imagination. Since this is the case, it can only benefit you to recognize in them magnificent models, by whose means we artists, if we imitate, perfect, and model them, 
will create works far more sublime and beautiful than anything visible to our senses which we meet here beneath the sun it is this very superiority in sublimity and beauty which i and those who pursue the same path with me oppose replied hermann nature is sufficient for us to take anything from her mutilates to add anything disfigures her but not replied myrtilus firmly when it is done only in a special sense and within the limits of nature to which the gods also belong the final task of art fiercely as you and your few followers contend against it lies in the disentanglement enhancing and ennobling of nature you too ought not to overlook it when you undertake to model a demeter for she is a goddess no mortal like yourself the rest or i ought rather to say the alteration which converts the mortal woman into the immortal one the goddess i miss and with special regret because you do not even deem it worth consideration that i shall never do retorted hermann irritably so long as it is a changing chimera which presents itself differently to every mind yet should it really be a chimera it is at any rate a sublime one myrtilus protested and whoever among us artists wanders through nature with open eyes and heart and then examines his own soul will find it worth while to attempt to give his ideal form whatever stirs my breast during such walks unless it is some unusual human being i leave to the poet replied hermann i should be satisfied with the demeter yonder and you too probably if entirely apart from that i had only succeeded fully and entirely in making her an individual that is a clearly outlined distinct personality this you have often told me is just wherein i am usually most successful but here i admit i am baffled demeter hovered before me as a kindly dispenser of good gifts a faithful loving wife daphne's head expresses this but in modelling the body i lost sight of the whole creation while for instance in my fig-eater every toe every scrap of the tattered garments belongs to the street urchin whom i wished to represent in the goddess everything came by chance as the model suggested it and you know that i used several had the demeter from head to foot resembled daphne who has so much in common with our goddess the statue would have been harmonious complete and you would perhaps have been the first to acknowledge it by no means myrtilus eagerly interrupted what our statues of the gods are we too know best a wooden block covered with gold and sheets of ivory but to tens of thousands the statue of the divinity must be much more when they raise their hearts eyes hands to it in prayer they must be possessed by the idea of the deity which animated us while creating it and with which we as it were permeated it if it shows them only if a woman endowed with praiseworthy qualities then interrupted hermann the worshipper should thank the sculptor for is it not more profitable to him to be encouraged by the statue to emulate the human virtues whose successful embodiment it shows him than to strive for the aid of the botchwork of human hands which possesses 
as much or as little power as the wood gold and ivory that compose it if the worshipper does not appeal to the statue but to the goddess i fear it will be no less futile so i shall consider it no blemish if you see in my demeter a mortal woman and no goddess nay it reconciles me in some degree to her weaknesses to which i by no means close my eyes i too i confess it often feel a great desire to give the power of imagination greater play and i know the divinities in whom i have lost faith as well as any one for i too was once a child and few have ever prayed to them more fervently but with the increasing impulse towards liberty came the perception there are no gods and whoever bows to the power of the immortals makes himself a slave so what i banished from life i will also remove from art and model nothing which might not meet me to-day or to-morrow then as an honest man abstain altogether from making statues of the gods interrupted his friend that was my intention long ago as you are aware the other answered you could not commit a worse robbery upon yourself cried myrtilus i know you nay perhaps i see farther into your soul than you yourself by ingenious fetters you force the mighty winged intellect to content itself within the narrow world of reality but the time when you will yourself rend the bonds and find the divinity you have lost will come and then with your mighty power once more free you will outstrip most of us and me also if i live to see it then he pressed his hand upon his rattling chest and walked slowly to the couch but Hermann followed, helped him to lie down, and, with affectionate solicitude, arranged his pillows. "'It is nothing,' Myrtilus said soothingly, after a few minutes' silence. "'My undermined strength has been heavily taxed to-day. The Olympians know how calmly I await death. It ends all things. Nothing will be left of me except the ashes, to which you will reduce my body, and what you call possession. But even this can no longer belong to me after death, because I shall then be no more, and the idea of possession requires a possessor. My estate, too, is now disposed of. I have just been to the notary, and sixteen witnesses, neither more nor less, have signed my will according to the custom of this ceremonious country. There, now, if you please, go before me and let me stay here alone a little while. Remember me to Daphne and the Pelusinians. I will join you in an hour. End of Book One, Chapter Nine